I have great news for you this morning. We are going to go back to the book of Revelation today, and we are going to do chapters 17 and 18. Look at that joyful 9 o'clock crowd. Can I tell you a little secret that maybe not everybody, not everybody in this room would, would care about? Maybe you don't. It wouldn't be something that you'd write down or write home to your mom about. Um, but uh, in the middle of August, last Sunday was the middle of August, middle of August. Now, you might not know this, but in the Northwest, in the middle of August, nobody goes to church. I didn't know if you, you have to go to church for a while to know that. But so typically, the churches panic in August. <laughs> they panic because ain't nobody there, okay? Uh, I got so much to say. Every time I'm looking around, I got, I'm, little, I'm filing things away here. But, but last Sunday, even we had, with teams being gone and people doing stuff, last Sunday, we still had, we still had over 300 people in the house. <laughs> That's so great. Chris and Linda, would you stand up for us? Uh, you know, we didn't have everybody uh, testify from the uh, Philippine trip, but here's the deal. Uh, when I had Mike come a couple years ago, uh, because of my, I knew Mike from being over there. I was over there, you know, a couple, a couple years ago for Thanksgiving for a crusade. And I met Mike and worked with him and enjoyed him. And so, okay, great, you come over here and you speak. Well, that Sunday that he was here, he said something to this effect. Hey, I have some friends that live in the Portland area. They might come in. They're kind of with, you know, Mike Key's ministries, and they'll come and kind of help us do our thing. You guys remember when you first met Mike, you were like, hey, we like that guy. He said things that shut up or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, now I can say that, she said. But uh, tough love, yeah. She was like, sweet, I got this guy. Um, my mom, my, my sister said the same thing about her, her boys in the military. They said, oh, I got to bring my sons to this church today. Hear him. Anyway, that being said, that was the first Sunday that Chris and Linda just kind of popped in to visit, and they they were they said nice things about you. They said, "Oh, isn't that nice?" And these people were nice to us. Uh, long and then I, they went back and saw Mike. They popped in a few more times, and then we had them when we decided that we were going to. Carol was going to lead a, t- a, a team from our house uh, to to the Philippines. They they were going to work with the with Chris and Linda. You know, they were the coordinators from the U.S. to take people over there. In the mix of all of that processing, the Lamberts came to the conviction that Heritage would be their home. And, and I was talking, and, and that, so I was just I was looking at them coming off the plane with our crew and having that, those relationships forged over a trip like that. And, and uh, I just want to us, there's a lot of people to recognize, but I want to make sure, because they live, they kind of fly under the radar. I want to make sure you see them and know that they've been with us maybe a year or less or around a year and a half or so as far as just really a part of the house. But these people are, are on our house. These people are on my bus. They're on our team. We look to them. They are partnering with us in, in, in leadership now and in mission. And so I want to also, you'll hear me say, Lamberts, I need help or whatever. These people are with us and they're good people and they're God's people and we're thankful for you. Thank you for being here. And great work with our team. Keeping our kids, our kids and our associates safe and happy the whole time and keeping an eye on everybody. Thank you for that. We're, we're thankful for you guys. All right. Um, golly, I, I saw somebody else out of the corner of my eye was going to say something. Oh, yeah, I can't. Yes, I can. Um, golly. Well, why, I don't, don't, don't want to uh, listen. Wes, lean forward. Put your hands on the shoulders of the man in front of you. This is not to be any, make anyone awkward, okay? We're going to pray for you, my friend, right now. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that this man, I thank you that he's wearing a heritage shirt today, and it reminds him that you are part of this house, that where you go, we go. Even if you go to a place that's rough or hurting, you're not there alone. We're with you. Our faith is with you. Our compassion is with you. Our confidence in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with you. And we declare, as Pastor Jim said a moment ago, the victory of the Lord that goes before us and we shout the victory of of the lord in your life and we bless you in jesus name healing in your heart your soul victory in your life may you be surrounded may the host of heaven themselves may there be angelic persons being assigned to your life to protect you to protect you from the top of your head to the soles of your feet protect your thoughts to protect your heart to protect the even the chemicals in your body that you would have peace 
peace and that your life forward would be one of peace, that you would enjoy the peace that Jesus paid for you to have. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. That's just the way we roll, okay? All right? So we love you guys. So have you, have you found Revelation chapter 17 yet? Okay, here we go. It's a longer, t- it's a longer title today. Uh, the title is, um, well, the title is due to my wife. I was walking through some things. I said, how am I going to title this? And then I was reading it to her. And I actually read it to her and I said, hey, babe, I'm going to read you two paragraphs and you tell me if this makes any sense. And she, I read it and she said, that's impossible. And so here's the title that Mrs. Dav came up with. Are you ready? Revelations chapter 17 uh, and 18, it's uh, Harlot Hills and Horns, oh my. <laughs> so that's it, Harlot Hills and Horns, oh my. Today is it's the fall of Babylon. Now, Chapter 17 and 18, like the rest of the book of Revelation, is not written for the calculation of the curious. It is not a fantasy about the future. It is not a tale of a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Revelation is about spiritual realities that are interacting with world powers. And this is written as it has been for those before you, this is written to inspire and to strengthen your hope, your devotion, and your resolve. This is to strengthen you. Because, as we have said time and again, eternity is real. Jesus is coming. We should live like it. Now, what we, are about, what we are about to read in Revelation 17 and 18 is one more example of how the book of Revelation is just is not laid out in, in a linear progression, a linear timeline. It, it literally tells a story, then sometimes backs up and retells a story or back up and, and retell like, a, like any good superhero movie. There's an origin story, okay? So chapters, uh, we saw the origin story of the dragon and the beast, and then we saw what they were doing. And, but... In 17 and 18, it's the, it's the tale of the fall of Babylon. But chapters 17 and 18 really magnify or tell the story of one verse. Revelation 14 and verse 8, right in the middle of all of that was happening in Revelation 14, 8, we hear this cry. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, after that, in chapter 14, we don't hear any more else about, about Babylon. We, all of a sudden, we hear that, and we move on to the next thing. Well, now, we're going to hear the Paul Harvey. This is the rest of the story. This is the, 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 the description, the prophetic description. It's, a, it's prophetic. There's a, there's a deal of a lot of symbolism here, but it's a prophetic description of what this Babylon is. And for us, it's really important we lean in and understand what, what's being said so that we respond to it well. Babylon is, in Revelation, the great city. Would you all say the great city? It's the great city. And it is, a, it is in, in Revelation, it is a real place and it is a representative place. It, it's real, but it also represents. It's a real place and a representative place, both of which are centers of power for man's arrogance and moral rebellion. Babylon, man's arrogance, man's moral rebellion. This is all rooted. Babylon is just a Greek transliteration, if you will, of Babel. You guys remember Babel, the Tower of Babel, way back in the book of Genesis, the book that we have to understand if we're going to get a worldview of, of, of this whole planet. But Genesis tells us the beginning of things. And there's a story of humanity or... Sorry, I get all excited when things make sense to me. But, there's a story of humanity organizing itself in opposition to the will and direction of the Lord, organizing itself in moral rebellion and arrogance, 
and in pagan worship. The Tower of Babel was, I believe, and I can prove to you, but if not, we'll do it in Genesis, was actually not just like, hey, let's just build a skyscraper. The Tower of Babel was, a, was, a rep, was, a rep, was just like uh, temples that they built back in those days. They had a flat top and like a pyramid structure, and the top of it was a place for their gods to come and sit. And they said, and what they said was, let's build the biggest one. It was an expression of their moral rebellion and their pagan instincts to of idolatry. I'm so tempted. I'm gonna do it. It's strange, isn't it? How after the Tower of Babel, and we know that the Bible tells us the nations were divided. How is it then? Has anybody ever posited how how it is? that nations on all around the globe, ancient civilizations all around the globe, miraculously, with incredible technology, managed to build these massive monuments, and they looked similar, but no one can understand how they did it. Well, that's weird. It's like they, it's like they knew something, and then they shared a night anyway. <laughs> we'll talk about that in Genesis. But, so we have Babel. Babel is this ancient expression of man's, of fallen, rebellious humanity. You with me? Okay. So it's the symbol of human pride and rebellion. Babylon then becomes the symbol for the world system that's actually dominated by or influenced, infected, I meant to use the word infested by Satan. The book of Revelation then contrasts Babylon versus New Jerusalem. Babylon is the city of man. It is man's rebellion, man's angst, man's sin versus a new creation, a new city, the city of God. We'll get to that later on, but just giving you a heads up, John is, through the Spirit, going to separate the idea that one world system will fall and it will be replaced by a new creation. Jesus said, don't think that I came to put a patch on a garment. We always talk about that means for us personally, and it does. But he didn't stop at one person or a group of people or a nation. He means creation itself is not going to receive a patch or a band-aid, but he has come to make all things new. And that requires that one thing has to die, just like you and I had to die. Our old man had to die, Christ had to die, and Babylon must fall. In John's day, Babylon was was Rome. Rome embodied the spirit of Babylon for the first century. It didn't exhaust that spirit, but it embodied it. Rome, at the time that John is writing the book of Revelation, Rome is at the height of her power. Christianity is like, one-tenth of one percent, if that. I mean, it's just the, the, of, of the whole population. And yet, John, the, a follower of this tiny new religious sect, is banished from this all-powerful empire. He is banished to an island because they can't kill him. They tried. They can't kill him, so they banish him to an island to get rid of him. He's so frightening. And on this island, this one old man versus an entire empire writes a funeral dirge over Babylon. They're at the height of their power. It's impossible. And this old guy buried on an island somewhere. Fallen is Babylon. Babylon had come and gone before. And John sees now in the spirit that it would soon go again. It's important for us to remember that John is writing a pastoral letter to address immediate problems of his readers. He is not writing a puzzle for later readers. His concern is that his fellow Christians need to recognize that the imperial power opposed to them is ultimately demonic and ultimately doomed. So, in chapter 17 and 18, and we're talking about Babylon, are we talking about Rome? The ancient city of Rome and its power, its empire, the empire of Rome. Are we talking about them? 
Yes, history affirms that to be true. But are we 100% preterists? No. We also believe that when, we're, when we hear Babylon, Babylon is it also representative of world systems. Yes, which is why you and I can come to this text and we can pay attention and learn from these passages. Babylon, its hills, its harlot, and its blasphemous beast, they were, they have been, are they yet to come? Yes, probably so, until Jesus comes, perhaps increasingly more evil and more powerful. But remember this, Babylon has been here, it's been around, but it ultimately is doomed. It must go, for there's a new kingdom coming. Okay, now, John chapter 17, pardon me, John chapter 17, John, Revelation 17. By John, you get me. Okay, John 17, 1. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture today so that, um, in, in, in large swaths, because I, that's why I tried to introduce this, so you understand what we're talking about is the description of a world system that must that that is and must go, so that a new the new creation the new Jerusalem can come. All right. I, oh gosh, I, every time I say New Jerusalem, I get nervous that people think, "Oh, good, the big Rubik's cube out of the sky coming." We'll talk about that. Please don't say that. Okay. Uh, Verse, verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. In the Bible, harlotry represents the spread of wicked influence. And this person is drunk on the wine of immorality, as are the nations around her. Many waters, we'll see this in a minute, that has to do with her connection with and influence over many peoples and nations. Verse 3, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Now, not only does that mean that John is in a place of spiritual ecstasy and communion with the spirit by which he is seeing things, that means that what he is seeing is spiritual. This is symbolic. We with me? Everybody say symbolic. There's a, there's a whole lot of symbolism that's coming. Okay, and it's not, symbolism is not an exact science. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. I got to stop and say, please pay attention to this description. It's a description of opulence and wealth and power that, is also, that, that contains things that are unclean and immoral. This is our world. This is the world system. The world system can be shiny and beautiful and opulent, and, has the, and that, that gives the ethos of excellence and admiration and awe and, and shine. But it can be very, very shiny and yet be ultimately sinful. Verse 5, and on her forehead was... On her forehead, a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. He's saying that this person in her opulence and in her, in her immorality is also an, oppress, uh, an oppressive force that power and wealth have, have united and, and in that union have also sought specifically, specifically targeted the name of Jesus. Again, for John, the harlot is Rome, the Roman Empire. She is adorned in luxury and intoxicated with the blood of the saints. The Roman historian himself, Tacitus, describes Rome as the place where, and I quote, where all the horrible and shameful things in the world congregate and find a home. 
I want you to, to, to note again how John sees her and how he describes this, this image of wealth and opulence and power. That is her appearance for now. Everybody say for now. You've got to see this. Remember, this is what the, she looks like with the shine on. John's images here are timeless, and they portray the, the essential conflicts in humanity from the beginning of time until the end. Now, verse 7, and, and the, the angel said to me, why do you wonder? John said, hey, I, I wondered about that, but the angel said, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Verse 8, that the beast that you saw, <laughs> here's where it gets more fun, was and is not, and is about to come out of the abyss and go into destruction. Huh? <laughs> right? But not done yet. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So we've heard this beast already. This is not a new beast. This is not the beast, the, you know, part three, the, the sequel. This is a beast that we saw in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, that came up out of the abyss. It's the, it's the, it's the beast that we saw depicted in Revelation 13, 1, that, that where John sees him coming out of the sea, same place, and describes him in, in color and with heads and horns and the whole thing. This is the beast that we've talked about, okay? And, and, and we've heard this, it was, is, not, will be, that he, we, earlier we saw that he, was, that he bore a wound and all of that. There are many theories, and I've said this before, let me say it again. You say, oh, good, he's going to tell us what was, is, not, will be, is, am, are, was, where being, men become, seem. We're going to, we're going to, uh, those are being, those are be verbs. Uh, he's going to tell us all that. Nope, here's the deal. There are a lot of theories about emperors, what these emperors were, and, and honestly, if you read them, they'll say, well, if you take these, these nine emperors, but take away these two who are pretenders to the throne, then you get seven. You take away three, you add two more, minus one, add five, you get seven. And, that, and, people, and there are pages of commentaries de- devoted to this stuff. And I just go, oh. <laughs> you know, no thanks. Like, I, I do not, I just can't. Remember, my, da- Dr. Dav's AAA Bible hermeneutic is, was what, right? Author, audience, agenda. If it doesn't fit into those three things, I just have to say, no thank you. I don't think that's what was meant, okay? Uh, so for John, this very well may have represented or spoken of the rise and the fall of different emperors. But not for the point of pointing out, like, there's one, there's one, but to help us understand that evil is elusive and persistent, it comes and it goes, but it is persistent, and it is not going to... Evil will not fall simply with the passage of time. Evil will not, will not fall because of our resistance or our legislation. Evil will fall when it is fallen by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So there's, there's this cycle of rule. The text reminds us that evil is elusive, it's hard to kill, it's persistent, and it's real, but it also reminds us that there is absolutely no uncertainty about the future of this evil beast. It is doomed. All right, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Okay, good, on which the woman sits. All right, seven heads are seven mountains. Got it? There are also seven kings. Wait a minute. They're mountains and they're kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not. When he comes, he must remain a little while. If you're trying to do the math, Johnny has three apples. That's, the, that's how this is answered. How many apples does Johnny have? Three. All right? Here's the deal. Seven mountains. The, the, right away he says these seven mountains, these seven heads are seven mountains and seven kings. What are we saying? Symbolism is not an exact science. It is symbolism. Images represent things, but real things. Yes, Rome was a city built on seven hills. You can't escape that. Rome had seven powerful emperors who rose and who persecuted the church. Roman, Rome was over, had influence over seven broader different realms. The fact that there is and not yet and will be, these may be exact descriptions of what was happening in John's time, but they are likely figures of speech for leaders that will rise and fall, rise and fall. These are the symbolic world kingdoms of the beast. 
Verse 11, the beast which was not, pardon me, let me just say this right. The beast which was and is not is himself an eighth and one of the seven. It's okay to go, huh? It's okay. It's apocalyptic literature. This is not, this is not geometry. There's not, you, this is not exact. This is prophetic. This is meant to communicate a truth. The beast himself is apparently also a ruled ruler, being one with him. But what's important to see is that he is doomed, regardless of the world power, regardless of what secular or pagan authority persecutes and oppresses or silences the testimony of Jesus, they have fallen and they will. Verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. But they receive authority as kings of the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. For a long time, people were really hoping that that was the European Union. But that looks like it's on its way out. So now, now we've got to write some new books about stuff. Okay? But the point is this. The kingdoms of this world will all come to serve the beast. This is what John wants us to see. The world system will time and again unite to serve the interests of the beast. This be, the beast, and the beast is this world power, this, this, this thing that is influenced, inspired, and given authority from Satan himself. We saw that earlier. All of that, so there's bad news. Rulers and kingdoms and coming and raw. But, verse 14, these will wage war against the lamb. Now, how will they do that? We've already heard. They wage war against the Lamb by, by, by waging war against the, those who, who hold the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. They wage war against the Lamb by, by, by warring against the church herself. They wage war against the Lamb. But here's the thing. This couldn't be stated more matter-of-factly here. I imagine we will hear this in stronger language later. But here it is. And the Lamb will overcome them. Let, let me try them. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six words in the New American Standard Bible sums up the book of Revelation. Six words describes this whole thing. Here it is. And the Lamb will overcome them. That's it. Because why will he do that? Because he's the, just the lamb. No, listen, lest, lest, you know, lest you forget who this is. Lest you have some sort of weird uh, Christology that makes Jesus some sort of junior varsity you know, deity out there. Here's this lamb. Because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. John says something exceedingly important. The Lamb will overcome all the evil systems and powers of this world. He, he is, he is, his, when he comes, at his coming, Babylon will be gone. There will be no more trace of an infested, sinful world system. He will do this because he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and those who with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Here, John is not only reminding his followers of who Jesus is, he is reminding them of who they are. That they, he said, you, you he's, he, he reminds them of whose they are, that they are the called, that God is the one who initiated, that they have been called, and who they are. They are the elect. They are, this is their identity. They are different the elect, they are set apart. They are different. They are the elect. They are saints. They are set apart from this world. And how they live, they are the faithful. These are people who live with hope and devotion and resolve. You are the called. You are the elect. You are the faithful. You have nothing to fear from Babylon. Verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Symbolism. 
For God has put in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beasts until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Babylon rules over many peoples and nations. But eventually her corruption collapses and devours itself. The beast is not loyal to Babylon. There is no deal with the devil that is worth it. The beast represents a world system that has sold itself to the dragon, that has partnered with the dragon. The beast receives from the dragon a throne and power and influence and authority. And Oh, I love this. This is great. This must be fantastic. And, the, and, and, and that's why we see the harlot upon the beast dressed in opulence and wealth and power. Why, this is fantastic. Who wouldn't want to be a part of this deal? But then John sees that that corruption collapses on itself. The beast isn't loyal to Babylon. Babylon becomes the victim of the beast. There is no deal with the devil that is worth it. His promises are empty. If you sell yourself to his lies, you will end up in ashes. Mark chapter, five, Mark chapter 8, 36, Jesus said, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Verse 18, pardon me, chapter 18, verse 1. That was a whole chapter. Are you ready? Now we're going to go a little bit more quickly now, the larger swaths here to, to see what's going on. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Wow. And he cried out with a mighty voice. Once again, and nobody whispers in Revelation. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become, listen to this, a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of of every unclean and hateful bird. That doesn't necessarily mean caca birds. This is talking about these are these are spiritual uh, unclean things that are that have infested Babylon. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of her passion and immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. An angel comes and announces that Babylon has fallen. And we see what she is really like when the shine is worn off. That she's actually a haunt for demons and unclean spirits. The arrogance is particularly of Western civilization that dismisses the reality of the demonic is proven foolish. You can, you can, Lord, this is the Bible. I'm talking Bible here. It's symbolism, so don't anybody get triggered. But you can dress up a harlot, but she's still a haunt for the demonic. It doesn't matter how many pearls and opulence and scarlet and, 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 and all of the, the, the purple expensive gowns with which she was covered. That was covering her, but within her was everything unclean and demonic. And when the shine wears off, this is what we see. Compare this depiction in chapter 18, the first few verses, to how she is described in the first few verses of chapter 17. This is the real nature of secular society. This is the aftertaste of the wine of immorality. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is not in my notes. But remember this, God keeps track. You either have everything paid for by Jesus or there's still a debt to be paid. 
Verse 6 says, pay her back even as she has been paid and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her to the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensually to the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow. I will never see mourning. For this reason, in her, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine. We've read that. Seals and trumpets and bulls, we've read that. Okay, this is a broader description. And she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord who judges her is strong. Whoa. But I want you to see the first the first imperative of this whole section in Babylon is arguably the most important, although the second one is just as important. <laughs> Jesus said that. The first is great. The second one just like it. So here's the first imperative of this passage. to everybody. It's the prophetic word to all who will read this passage here. And I'll say it again. 18, and he cried out, fallen, fallen. Oh, no, verse 4. And I heard another voice saying, come out of her my people. That is the imperative. There's the prophetic word to the church, the church who is surrounded by or perhaps living in the midst of Babylon. Here's the Lord says, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. Come out and do not participate. What's the prophetic word in all of this passage? What's the church? What do we hear in Babylon and all about it? Come out from her. Don't participate. Don't drink from that. Don't engage in that. Don't believe those lies. Come out. God doesn't want any of his church to face any of the horrible stuff that happens because people buy into the lies of the devil. None of that is designed for his church. It's not designed for your family. It's not designed for your kids. It's not designed for you. None of that stuff is not, it's his plan or his purpose or his provision. But you've got to come out. You've got to let go of it. He's paid the price. He's paid the fare. He set you free. Every chain is broken. Come out. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world or this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Be different. Come out from Babylon. Walk differently. Talk differently. Have different values. Don't imitate the world around you. Imitate Christ. This is your devotion. This is your resolve. Verses 6 through 8 tell us, again, reminds us why. that It describes the judgment Babylon receives and why. She has sown violence. She has glorified herself, and she will receive what is due her. She has sown, and she will reap. Verse 9, this is, so Babylon collapses, burning in ashes and, and horrible, right? And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensually with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Standing at a distance, there's loyalty. That's the world's loyalty. Standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, to the great city of Babylon, the strong city, the great city, the strong city. Everybody say that loud. The great city, the strong city. Listen to these words. For in one hour, your judgment has come. The kings look in shock at what appeared to be so powerful. It's gone in one hour. This was the case for Rome. Inexplicably, Rome collapses. It has been true, and it will be true. The brash arrogance of oppression of oppressive world kingdoms all fall, and they all will. Pick it up at verse 11 now, a little bit longer passage. We're going to go all the way through uh, 19. And the merchants of the earth. So the first patch is talking about the kings of the earth that saw Babylon fall. This is all about the merchants of the earth. The merchants of the earth 
will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple silk and scarlet, all that that she used to wear, every kind of, of citron wood and every article uh, of ivory and article made of very costly wood and bronze and irons and marble and cinnamon and spice and everything nice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves of human lives. Isn't that interesting? Did you catch that? Did you catch that, though? Did you read that? He's describing economy, 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 asset, 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 we think, things we own, things we own, people. You see that? It's always been true. The more aggressive our greed, eventually we start trading in people. Verse 14, the fruit you long for has gone from you, and all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand, where? At a distance because of, her, because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, whoa, whoa, the great city, she who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living from by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out when they saw the smoke. What's, what is the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning. Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her, by her wealth. For in one hour, she has been laid waste. This is John's point. That the merchants, the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth, all who loved the wealth of, the, of Babylon, all who loved the power of Babylon, are astonished because just as her power vanished, her wealth has vanished. Both things that a secular society flexes and boasts in can vanish in a lifetime. Rome's did, others have, others will. The emphasis in this, especially for us, is not just to go, oh, that's an, that's an historically interesting observation. No, the emphasis is the emptiness of this world. Its promises are hollow, and when they fail, when they vanish, all those who all those who love them all they have left is sorrow and regret verse 20 rejoice over her o heaven and and you saints and apostles and prophets do i have any of those three in the room you got to fit one of them okay apostles and prophets and saints because god has pronounced judgment for you, against her. This is the only other imperative in the passage. There are two. The first one, come out. Be different. Be separate. The second one, rejoice. After just reading all of that, rejoice. Now, that, some of you might go, wow, that didn't sound very happy. But why? Rejoice. Why? Rejoice over this because Heaven's justice is your joy. Heaven's justice is your joy. Rejoice because in the end, when you have been faithful to Jesus and rejected the world's empty promise, you will have lost nothing. And you will have gained everything. So when you see these judgments, both in the, his, in the history and the future declaration, that man and his emptiness and his vileness and his boastfulness will fall, rejoice. Not just You're not saying, ha, ha, good riddance, but you're saying, I've lost nothing. I've gained everything. Heaven's justice is my joy. Verse 21, then a strong angel, I like them, then a strong angel took up a stone and with a, and like a great millstone threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, 
be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. You might say, Dad, is that history or future? Yes. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsman or any craft be found in you any longer. And the, and the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. Things are not going to be found in you anymore. That's what the rest of it says. Any longer. No more. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Here's, this is a, again, like, like John has been. He is recalling or quoting Old Testament scripture. Jeremiah 51, 63 through 64. He, the Lord says, as soon as you finish reading this scroll, you will tie it to a stone and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates and say, listen, this sounds familiar, just so shall Babylon sink and not rise again because of the calamity that I am going to bring upon her. John is telling us, this is it. There will come a time when the spirit of Babylon will fall, never to rise again. He has written about it even in the past tense because he saw it happen. Imagine being John's audience. That one-tenth of one percent of a population, of a religious sect, under under the oppression of an invincible empire with more money and more power than the Mediterranean has, has ever seen. And you get this letter in the mail that says, Babylon has fallen. <laughs> and you wonder, and then Rome finds these Christians laughing and dancing with no fear. Facing persecution and loss, they are led by the prophetic spirit to understand that their oppressor will soon be destroyed. The future is not desolate, but filled with joyful expectation of the vindication of their faith. John's message could not have come at a more appropriate time, and the spirit still speaks to us today. How should believers see and respond to the world, to the age around them, to to the Babylon, if you will, around us. What should we do? Come out and be different. Babylon has nothing to offer you. Don't be afraid. Be different. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy into it. Stop. Do not excuse or or accommodate the lies of, of, of this world system. Don't. Don't buy it for your marriage. Don't buy it for your kids. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. Come out and be different. There's plenty for you to follow in Jesus. Secondly, rejoice. Rejoice. You should not read this and come out of here with your furrowed brow. You know, staring, staring at the cars around you. Hey, you're from Babylon. No. No. No, you say that, tell him you went to a different church this morning. That's why the symbolism is so strong here. This is not about a people. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Stop, stop doing that. No, you love, Jesus loved the people around you. He loved them too much to let them be burned up in Babylon. But listen, you still got good news. This world system, inspired by the devil, as opulent and as powerful as it presents itself, has nothing to offer you. And by rejecting it, you lose nothing and gain everything. You have heaven to gain forever and ever. You serve the Lamb. And good news, He's King of kings and Lord of lords. Live, therefore, with hope and devotion, and faithfulness. Resolve. Eternity is real. Jesus is coming. Let's stand together as we close this morning. I hear the phrase, don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that you need to be like Babylon or that you need to import counsel from Babylon. 
Don't buy the, the condescension from Babylon that Babylon is right and you are wrong. After all, who are you? You are just one-tenth of one percent of a sect, but they are opulent and wealthy. No, no, no. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that says that, that Babylon says that you aren't, that you cannot, that you should not, that you aren't anything. Don't buy the lie of Babylon that says you should be depressed, you should give up, you should end it. There's nothing for you. The lies of Babylon are only meant to deceive and to distract and to destroy you. Don't buy the lie. Come out and rejoice. The further, there's a good word, the further you get away from Babylon, the, 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 the sweeter, the stronger, the louder the sound of joy will be. Follow the joy. Listen for it. Follow that. Today, Lord, this message about the falling and the, dis- the, the doing away with the, the corruption and the collapse of man's evil rebellion. But ultimately, Lord, there's just six words that matter. You, Lord Jesus, the Lamb, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And our testimony today, Lord, is that you are King of kings and Can we just lift them up? Just tell him. Would you just celebrate he's king of kings and lord of lords? You are king of kings. You are lord of lords. Lord Jesus, you are the lamb who has overcome. You are the lion of Judah. You have taken away the sins of the world. You have saved us. You have delivered us. Lord, we, you have called us. You have elected us. And we are faithful to you. You are the lamb and we are your faithful. And victory is ours for eternity. Somebody should give God praise. Lord, we give you thanks. I'll say it again with a smile on my face. Don't buy the lie. Come out, be separate, and rejoice. Can you say that with me? Come out, be separate, and rejoice. All right, go home. Be, be nice to somebody. Greet somebody on the way out. I got family waiting for me. Second time around. Here we go.